Welcome to Books Without Borders, the podcast where two people in different hemispheres come together to discuss our favourite things, books. I'm Emma. And I'm Nina. And yeah, we are coming at you from still Australia and America at this point in time. (laughs) Yes. Before we get into kind of the meat of things, I did want to say that I, I, I looked up the middle points between us uh, after, mm-hmm. our, after our conversation last time. I was curious. Yeah. So according to travelmath.com, the middle point between Florence and Melbourne is Kalmunai in Sri Lanka, on the east coast of Sri Lanka. I'm down. Which is cool. <laughs> also, I looked up just out of curiosity, the halfway point between New York and Melbourne, I, I nearly didn't even bother looking it up because I was like, oh, surely that's just going to be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And in a way, I'm correct. It is a place called Banana in Kiribati. It's uh, it's it's on the Christmas Island settlement. It's a it's a settlement on the Christmas Island in Kiribati. So, what? oh, there was a Christmas Island. There is a there is another Christmas Island. I think this one is. I think there's a Christmas Island that's more directly related to Australia that we uh, use for offshore detention centers. But that's a whole other topic that is not appropriate for this podcast, potentially. You know, political discussions to be set aside for now. Doesn't sound festive. Yeah, no, not particularly. Uh, <laughs> so, but 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 the place that, uh, that our middle point would be is called Banana, and it's on the Christmas Island, well, it's Christmas Island settlement of Kiribati. Oh, okay, I'll have to look into it. Yeah. So, yes, that thought that was interesting. How was your birthday? It was lovely. Um, you know, I went to Atlantic City, which is this sort of casino town outside of New York, sort of like the East Coast, Las Vegas. Is that um, where it is? I've heard of Atlantic City and I had I never it, had any idea where it was. Have you ever played the game Monopoly? Uh, I've played the original British version. It it well the original british version i i don't know exactly what that means because at least from my knowledge of its history i'm pretty sure it started in america i might be very wrong then but either way i've played the british version and it was very old (laughs) it might be like you know there's just a million versions there's a monopoly of like every there is yeah there's an australian one too i'm pretty sure but my mom always had the british one at home so so um, the original Monopoly game was based off of Atlantic City. The a lot of the like locations on the board are actual places in Atlantic City, such as like Park Place and Atlantic Avenue and stuff right. like that. And so I don't know, I didn't really come up so much in our trip, but it was just like a fun fact that I thought I'd mention, uh, especially because I recently listened to the Anthropocene Reviewed book. And he has a whole short essay story on the history of Monopoly. And it's- oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. I listened to that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, well, yeah. actually, actually, I read the physical hard copy of that one. So for the first time, I've read a book that you've audio booked. I think this is the first <laughs> time we've had that happen. Yeah, and I, I went for the audiobook. I think maybe because it was so similar to the podcast and it just like was a smooth mm. sort of transition for me. Um, I mean, also just, you know, audiobooks are convenient. But anyway... Uh, he has this essay on Monopoly, which I always found really interesting about how it was originally created by a feminist suffragette who mm. wanted to teach young kids about capitalism. And so she made this game and it got really popular and she didn't patent it because, you know, that's kind of part of the capitalist ideal that she's trying to, like, revolt against or, like, mm. you know, not support. <laughs> so she didn't do that, but it was getting very popular. So some guy came around almost inevitably, and stole the idea and patented it as his own game. And Hasbro still sells 
their copy of Monopoly with an instruction manual that has an original story of this guy and not the woman. And they give no credit to that woman who actually created the game. Of course. So that's irony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it didn't really come up so much in our trip, but it was just funny to think about to finally like go there since it's quite close to New York City. And I hadn't been before and mm. I was able to go legally for the first time. And as I said, I, I had a really good time gambling almost too good of a time (laughs) (laughs) oh dear did you get much of a chance to read anything while you were busy uh hoofing it in atlantic city hoofing it that's not a term you know what i mean having having a good time yeah we were having a good time um well i don't think i got any reading done actually wait that's not true i was gonna say i didn't get any reading done in atlantic city but i did read a whole like 40 page self-published pamphlet that my mom had like bought me off of amazon for some reason about how to play crafts and so we went to the beach because it's like a, a beachfront sort of city and it was really hot that weekend and we were laying on the beach and I just read the crafts book and then when we were done with the beach going inside I played and it was really fun. So I did do that reading while there but I've done plenty of reading otherwise. I've actually finished quite a few things. I think the last time we spoke I was reading Vanishing, no not Vanishing Girls, Broken Things by Lauren Oliver. Yeah, I kind of put that one on pause a bit, maybe because it's my like physical book. And so it was a bit harder to get more reading in. Also, I was just driving a lot last week, so less commuting time for reading. So that one was on hold, but I did finish this audiobook that I had been like playing in the background while I work for a few weeks. It was actually two audiobooks, a duology by Marie Rutkowski. Do you ever do you ever read the Winner's trilogy, the Winner's Curse, the Winner's Crime? No, they have no. beautiful covers. I recommend looking up the covers. Okay, I uh, I'll, I will do that. But yeah, no, I, I I'm not familiar with the author either. I think it was like one of these like really popular books back in like 2016 or something like that a while ago and I remember really loving them they're like YA fantasy I'm okay I'm also having just like side note I'm having this sort of confusion slash crisis over what does YA mean because (laughs) I remember when I read YA as a teenager the characters were always older than me and now they're my age but I feel like the general public consensus is that YA is younger than my age, even though the characters in most YA books are between, like, you know, maybe 16 to 20, which, you know, some some of them, when they're 16, sure, that's, like, a teenager age, right? But, like, I'm reading the series right now. It's the, the Midnight Lie and the Hollow Heart. It's a duology that's sort of a continuation of that winner's trilogy that she had written a while ago that was really uh, successful. And the characters are like 20, 21. And it's still classified as YA. So I don't know. I'm confused because on one hand, I feel like people make you think you're not supposed to be reading YA at this age, which but I don't care. <laughs> but <laughs> at the same time, I'm like, if this is YA, then why? There might, I don't know. Do you, do you see my confusion here? I do, yeah. I've, I've often wondered that myself because, like, there's some th- th- there's some forms of writing that I think may- maybe it just means, like, maybe without too many adult themes. But then there's also plenty of YA that's got, like, sex in it and stuff which you know personally I am I'm I'm always pro having you know 
sexual type behavior being seen as less adult than like obscene violence which it seems to be the opposite in most western cultures but anyway that's a side point but yeah it's it's definitely always confused me as well like what i have no idea where the line is like who who is making that decision totally and uh, as I'm sort of foreshadowing later in our discussion, we'll we'll talk about Pride and Prejudice. And I was just reminded that Lizzie is 20 in the book, which mm. means, is that YA? Is Pride and Prejudice YA? I don't know. And, and there's also plenty of children's books that are written with adult characters or adult... All the light we cannot see, half of the book, they're children, you know, like uh, the, yeah, book, the, book th- the book thief, mostly a child, um, you know, like all these books that we were just talking about last week um, yeah. as definitely adult best-selling fiction are, you know, they have young characters in them. So it can't be that is the definer. Yeah, I don't. I, it's hard to say because on one hand, I want to be like, oh, these labels are totally you know, constructed and irrelevant and used to sort of box in things for marketing for that has no like, practical purpose. But then also there are times that I read a book and I'm like, that's why I, I don't think I can read that just because it's just a different mind space. And, you know, I, there are certain cases where it feels very evident and other cases where it's super blurry. But I guess that's just the case with like trying to define anything strictly. Mm, true, true. Well, according to Wikipedia... Young adult fiction is a category of fiction written for readers from 12 to 18, which is interesting because I would think that that kind of maybe even 10 to 14, 15 would be what what I've heard people refer to as middle grade. Right. So 12 seems young for adult, for young adult fiction in my head. No, definitely. But also like... I feel like you're still a young adult up until, like, you're 30. <laughs> I, as someone who is nearly 26, I completely agree with that. Yeah, right? Like, when I read books that are, like, contemporary adult fiction, I even then feel like I, I can't call this not young adult because they are very much young adults, you know? Mm. Those kind of books where, like, they're just trying to figure it out and things are things are gray and, you know, sometimes it's, like, these romance novels or sometimes it's just situations where, like, people are, like, out of college and trying to find new jobs. Like, they're very much young adults. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's, yeah. To transition back into, like, the topic of conversation, which is what am I currently reading? So since we last spoke, I've finished quite a few books, actually, an audiobook and a handful of graphic novels. As I was saying, I've kind of put a pause on Broken Things just because it was a physical book and I've been driving a lot, so I haven't had as much, like, commuting time to read the physical book. But I have had time during work to listen to my audiobook, and I usually have one audiobook going and one physical book going. And an audiobook I've been listening to is the second in a series. It's The Hollow Heart, which is the second book in well, I don't know what the series is called, but the first one is called The Midnight Lie. And I believe it's a duology. I'm not sure if it's going to come out with another one. Like, it kind of wrapped up in a way that would be satisfying if it was just a duology. Mm-hmm. And she has three other books in this world taking place earlier in the timeline. And it was really interesting because I actually didn't realize that they were at all connected until the second book. Like, halfway through the second book, they referenced the character's first book. And... I had to like put it down for a week because I was just so shook and I, I even considered rereading or at least re-listening to the previous trilogy to really re- jog my memory because that's how <laughs> deeply connected they were and it totally caught me off guard. 
But after, you know, a few days, I kind of was like, okay, th- that's ridiculous. You, you can't, you don't have time to reread the whole series right now. And there are other things to read. It's okay. You're already like two thirds of the way through this two book series. So I decided to continue reading it. I totally on- get that temptation though. Like it's, there's, there's a, when, when you pick up something, it's unexpectedly part of a series or you start something, you're like, oh, I think I remember the previous books. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh wait, no, hang on. Maybe I should start again. <laughs> Yeah. Um, And her writing, I really appreciate her writing because it's just so strong and it's so engaging that even though I felt like I might have benefited from remembering certain details of the previous story, just like character relationship details, I didn't feel like it was so lacking. Like these two books could could 100% stand on their own and not need the other books, but it was cool because it was sort of like a generational store the next generation that was really interesting to realize because it brought in a lot of similar elements a similar like god pantheon a similar social order to an extent but then it was sort of like exploring different countries in this world or different islands in the area so that was that was very very cool because from what i remember the the first series is very much in like an imperialism fantasy story and so that was like really significant world building and the fact that she could like expand the world even further to include things we didn't even know about in the first story was very impressive Mm. overall i very much enjoyed it i don't think you know it's it's hard to gauge because i read the other series so long ago probably in like 2016 but I do feel like that other series maybe resonated a little bit more with me, so I ranked it slightly lower, but only just below because it was really good. And if you're looking for queer fantasy or, you know, stories that involve like fantasy imperialism, I definitely recommend also a very unique magic system. And it, it's just a great time. It was a it was a great time. <laughs> Good. So, Do you think that the previous series might have resonated more because you were younger when you read them, or do you think it's more to do with the writing style? You know, I I I don't think it's the writing. Well, okay, I, I don't think it's the tone. Is what I should say. I don't think it's the tone and the age that really made the difference. I think the first one just had a lot more uh, really beautiful imagery, mm. and I attracted to that sort of stuff especially in fantasy one of my favorite YA fantasy series well it's like a duology as well and it's it's more of a fairy tale retelling but it's called The Wrath and the Dawn by Renee Adier it's a retelling of the Arabian Nights fairy tales or mythology I don't know what exactly uh, to call it but it's really beautiful because it focuses so much on the palaces and the clothing and the jewelry and the food oh my gosh when authors go in on this amazing food ah it makes me so happy (laughs) Um, and so I think I just have a bit more of a, a memory that the other series had more of that element that I just have a lot of very stunning visual associations with that series that this series didn't quite give me Maybe because in that series was uh, dealing with an imperialist force that was very wealthy. And so there was a lot more beauty and luxury, you know. And in this series, there's some of that. Like there's an upper class, but it's not explored as deeply. At least like we don't spend as much time in that world, in that social sphere. So Mm -hmm. maybe that's why it was less like beautiful. But I think it was just also not as much about 
aesthetics or at least she didn't write about the aesthetics as deeply as she wrote about like the plot and the characters for me aesthetics are pretty important I think like that is what really draws me into a world and makes me feel like I'm part of it you know interesting interesting it sounds like you know in a way it's really interesting that we've kind of paired up for this podcast because it sounds like we come at reading from two very different angles because I'm (laughs) I'm really not into world building fantasy description type stuff I I tend to get bored quickly with that I'm much more of a dialogue and relationships between characters and and like like full character stuff which is why I, you know, I'm naturally drawn towards kind of realism. But um, yeah, it's 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 really interesting that we've got that kind of different way of experiencing books. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I definitely lean towards those things as well. Like, I don't read, I don't know, I, I think I need a balance between both because I don't read really heavy, what's the word for it? Like fantasy that, there's, there's, a, there's a word for it. Oh, High gosh. fantasy? High fantasy? Yeah, I think that's what it is. I don't read high fantasy because that's like too much world building for me or too many political or social systems to remember, you know, and there's often a lot of words that I don't, I can't like keep a catalog of in my head. So I don't tend to read really long fantasy books. I like, I actually really prefer like standalone or duology fantasy. That's kind of my favorite corner of fantasy. Which I know a lot of people don't love because it can feel like, oh, they didn't develop everything they could in this world. But I kind of like when things are left up in the air a little bit. Hmm. And I really need the strong relational aspect, like strong social, I don't know, sometimes romantic or even just like friendship or family. I need like these strong personal social connections because otherwise I don't feel as much investment in the story. Hmm. I remember back in the day, there was a really popular book called Passenger by Alexandra Bracken. Did you read that one? No. That one, people loved it so much, but I read it and my problem with it was that I, while I loved the world and the different places that they're exploring, it was sort of like a world time travel kind of book so it was like a pirate ship that was time traveling and traveling the world and so they're going to so many different cool places and so many cool different times but I just could not root for the characters I found them so bland and they had no chemistry when there's supposed to be a romance going on and it just ruined the story for me which was so mm-hmm. unfortunate I loved the the world so I need some of both I think yeah, that's the what you've just described reminds me of maybe like a more adult version of the Enid Blyton books. I don't know if you ever read those as a kid, but like the Magic Faraway Tree and the Wishing Chair, like literally the entire point of those books is that every single chapter they go to a different world and each world has a different theme essentially. Mm, um, so but cool. then the characters don't grow or change or do anything. So reading them again when I was older, I was like, um, boring. <laughs> Are you talking about the Magic Treehouse series? No, I think that might be a different thing. Wait, sorry, what's yours called again? The Magic Faraway Tree. They not only have very similar names, but they also have very similar premises in like that there's like some kids who go to a tree and every time they visit this tree, there's a new world they get to explore. In the Magic Treehouse, it's because some sorceress transports them. Very good series. That's it's funny that they're at least it sounds quite similar. Yeah, I I'm I'm now wondering whether um because Ina Blyton's a, a a very 
very much dead author now. She's uh, it was quite a long time ago. I'm wondering which one came first. Yeah, but anyway, I guess what I was getting at was that was my first like finished book of the week and then I yesterday had some free time that I spent at a library where I binged three graphic novels so I'll go through them pretty quickly but the first one is called Gorilla Green it's about the Gorilla Green activist movement it's really cute like it's the tone and the art style are just adorable but the content is so interesting and so inspiring and it's all about this movement of people who like plant edible or like flowering seeds around urban spaces as a way to like sort of re-green these urban landscapes and sort of switch the uh, I guess what's, what's the word I'm looking for sort of take back the green spaces so that they're used in more productive ways by mm. like growing food rather than growing you know grass or shrubs mm you know, or flowers that improve mental health or have, you know, been proven to or have medicinal qualities or things like that. So it, it's very, very interesting movement. It's very global. This book was written by a French activist and she gave a lot of examples of different people around the world doing this and it got me very inspired. It was like an environmentalist kick that I needed because I just haven't had so much environmentalist inspiration lately. And, you know, I highly, highly recommend it. I rated it quite high sort of in a category that I associate with like books that everyone needs to read. It's like a really short like 100 page or something graphic novel but it was so informative and so exciting that it, I feel like I need to like add it to everyone's list. It's certainly um, going on mine. That sounds that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's so worth it. It's it's so quick and you learn so much and it's like a really exciting way to get into environmentalism or to contribute. It's not so like grueling as a lot of the ways that require sacrificing things. It's actually about like growing something and building a community around it. I really loved it. Then others were actually ones that I believe were both recommended by Ariel Bassett on the Books Unbound podcast. She's my go-to graphic novel recommendation person because she's just always recommending them. And I have a bit of a hard time with them because often I feel like it just cuts the story too short because they're just, they tend to be short, right? Mm. Um, they're like short stories, which I also have a hard time with. But anyway, these two I read Afternoon at McBurger's, which I almost, she gave a description, like you can describe it in like one sentence and it's the entire book. And so from the description, I was really interested in it because it has a really, it has, it has a strong premise. But when I read it, I almost had wished that I hadn't heard the description because it was the entire story. And so there were no surprises for me, whereas I would have probably enjoyed it more going into it with like just completely blind. It's a book that because it's so short and you know the the content is limited I wouldn't have bought I read it at a library so I recommend that you know people pick it up but I wouldn't go so far as to say like oh this is a book you have to buy you know like even if you go to Barnes and Noble or wherever whatever your major book chain store is and you see it on the shelf you can probably read it in five minutes I recommend doing that not that I don't want to support the author but just because you know there's so many books and it's really short it'd be hard for me to invest my money in it but it was fun and like I said, I'm not going to describe it. I'm just going to I'm gonna let you live in this mystery because that's just a better way to experience the book. Okay. Uh, 
and then the other one is called No One Else. That was the the last book I've read this week, and it was also a graphic novel. It was all right, um, sort of like what I said about graphic novels in general having a pretty limited content. It, it's it, hard for me to get invested in the characters, but I'm always like pushing myself to read them for some reason because I really want to like them. I don't know, but I I did really appreciate the art. Like I you know, I'm an art student, I'm frequently putting very intense critical eye on visual culture. And so maybe that's what my draw towards graphic novels is. But the art in this one was really beautiful. It was this like navy grayish palette with occasional splotches of really bright neon orange, which was fun. And it was a story about a family going through grief and how everyone sort of experiencing it differently but I don't know I can't really say there was that much of a plot to describe kind of like grief was the main topic but it wasn't even just like explored very seriously or it wasn't really explored very deeply so Mm. I don't know if I would really recommend it just because it felt kind of not enough for me Mm. but as a visual item I appreciated it for sure. So more more of a more of something to approach as a piece of art rather than a piece of literature, I suppose. I yeah, I think so, and that's often how I feel about graphic novels. Although you know, just maybe to transition real quick into current reads, I'm currently reading a graphic novel, another Errol Bissett recommendation called An Embarrassment of Witches, which is a longer graphic novel, which I'm much more able to get into and appreciate as a literature a work of literature or a narrative story because there's just more content you know but yeah no that one I'm like halfway through really enjoying I definitely recommend it's a great fun easy read about some witches it's fantasy because they're witches but it doesn't acknowledge the fact that witches are out of the normal it doesn't acknowledge our world really it's about witches who just got out of their witch college and are now trying to become adults and live their life and it feels very much like a realistic coming of age at 20 something type of story but they just happen to be witches and there just are like magical elements like tossed in there in really cute ways that sounds Um, amazing oh yeah so it's very like relatable but also very whimsical so I highly recommend it. I'm immediately adding that one. That sounds great. (laughs) Cool. What about you? Your current reads? So I, uh, last time we spoke, I think I just started Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata. And as I mentioned last week, that was for the color wheel prompt for the Magical Readathon because it's got a yellow cover. That's the color I landed on on the color wheel. So yeah, I finished that basically... I think it was either that day or the next day like, uh, I flew through that one. It's a nice short one. So yeah, that's uh, by Sayaka Murata and it's translated by Ginny Tapli Takemori. It was such a nice little kind of palate cleansing book almost. Like it was like, it was just like a really short, quirky, it had had some moments of more kind of deeper, like deeper feelings but a lot of it was basically just really amusing like so so essentially the premise is that the main the the main character and and the person who is kind of the she's it's not it's not in first person it's not a direct narrative voice but it's very much from her perspective Mm -hmm. and she essentially has a very very kind of 
logical, very not, not logical. What's the word? Um, a very literal perspective on the world. Um, so it's almost it's almost kind of an outsider's perspective on human behavior and how weird it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and it's 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 it was delightful. Absolutely absolutely loved it can recommend well it was already on my tbr but let's just pretend i added it again (laughs) (laughs) nice um yeah i think it was mentioned in books unbound podcast multiple times by at least one of them um (laughs) so the next one i read was northanger abbey so i had i had a few days without reading unusually for me in between because i not gonna lie got into obsessive mode with figuring out how to edit the podcast and then I kind of burned myself out because chronic illness uh you know so whoops (laughs) I will try not to do that this time um but yeah basically I I ended up having a few days off so I haven't actually read that much but by my recent usual standards but yeah I then read Northanger Abbey which is I think the shortest of Jane Austen's if one of the shorter if not the shortest um it's so uh, and that was fulfilling you know one book closer to my finish all the Jane Austen's this year and now I think the goal is basically going to be like this next this or next month (laughs) right uh so that was you know I've I've now read five out of six it was also really delightful and really quirky and funny and I think it's kind of uh underrated I think because I, I, you never hear anything about it, but it's 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 very amusing. Oh, you're just getting me so excited to have our Pride and Prejudice conversation in a bit, but we have to we have one more section to go through before we get there. We do, we do. We'll just uh, <laughs> tease that. Yeah, but the, the it was yeah. I, I I can really recommend that as well. I know that from from like the romance story element of Jane Austen books which is the thing that you and I discussed last week we both you know really enjoy it's probably not as strong as some of the others because it's much much more predictable Mm -hmm. but it's a very different main character voice than the other ones I've read so you know a lot of Jane Austen's heroines tend to be you know people who are slightly more independent or you know or much more in Lizzie Bennet's case but people who are more independent than other women of their era or people who are more intelligent or you know have that kind of step up from their kind of internal wiring in a way um Whereas this character is is basically defined by her big heartedness and willingness to fit in, and basically, basically, like I think even the opening line says something like, you know, an old an old timey version of she's not the sharpest tool in the shed, but she has a big heart, and I want you to remember throughout this book that she has a big heart. And there's also a lot more of the narrator speaking directly to the reader like that, um, which was also really amusing. She's just she's just Jane Austen is a really funny woman, and it really comes out in this book. So it was very delightful. That sounds so good. That sounds so different from her other stuff. I imagine it's kind of a almost release from the typical style that even Jane Austen you know when you read a lot of one author I imagine it can get a little tiring so I like that there's something different to throw in there totally yeah makes me want to do that binge too Mm. it's almost oh you you haven't you haven't read Emma have you no I have not Uh, okay well when you when you do and and you know for listeners who have read it the story of uh, Catherine's the name of the 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 main character in Northanger Abbey, and her her character reminds me a bit of what I always 
associated with Harriet Smith. For for people who haven't read the book, she, she's kind of a mentee in a way. Like she's she's you know very willing to please and looks up to people who she she sees as you know having any kind of authority or knowledge on any topic basically. But yeah, very delightful. So yeah, so those are the only two books I completed, and they were both very short. So yeah, less less reading than I normally do. But the other day I started the fourth and final book in the Neapolitan novels series that I was talking about last week called The Story of the Lost Child. So it's again by Elena Ferrante, the translator for those books I forgot to mention last week, but it's Anne Goldstein. And yeah, I'm halfway through that as of a few minutes before we started recording. (laughs) And uh, it continues to be very much kind of that dark, deep, almost study of human behavior, but from very much an emotional place. Again, like I said last time, it's very reflective of it's now, I think, yeah, this book would be now in the, the 1970s in Italy. So there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot going on and it's, it's still very deep. But I'm really looking forward to finishing that series. It was, it's, it's been, it's, it's been really captivating all the way through. Have people in the Discord caught up to you? No. The other person who was kind of toe-to-toe with me is taking a little bit of a longer break, but she said that she's probably going to start reading it on Sunday. So yeah, won't be too far behind. <laughs> I feel so silly for being part of the Patreon, but not contributing so much to the Discord. I really want to use it more, but I think I've just been so like burnt out from from work. I'm hoping that once school starts and I transition into that sort of pace of life, it'll be easier to get into it and be a part because I really do love the community of it. Totally fair. Look, I mean, honestly, the main reason I joined the Patreon, because, you know, as much as I absolutely adore the podcast and I really love being able to contribute to them, if I contributed to everything I love as much as them, I would be broke. I'm very passionate about a lot of (laughs) a lot of podcasts. But actually, the main reason I joined was because it sounded from from what they were saying, like hinting at with the live shows and the Discord chats and stuff, that it was a really nice community. And it is. It's it's awesome. I really enjoy engaging with that. Oh, yeah. No, it's a good time. Definitely a good time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so once I finish the story of The Lost Child, that'll be both that series of four and that, for, you know, my first ever Buddy Read series um, done. And it's also the book I've chosen for the third of my... Did I? Oh, I don't think I mentioned the Northanger Abbey I picked to read next, both because it was the next Jane Austen thing and because it fit the prompts I needed for Magical Readathon, which is the oldest book on your to be read pile, which could be interpreted either as the book that's been on your TBR the longest or the oldest book, but I just decided to go by oldest um, by publication because it just happened to be the next Jane Austen book I wanted to read. So that worked out. Um, And yeah. And then the story of the lost child is what I'm using for a prompt that was basically just like read a second handbook. And then um, the creator of the readathon said that that also includes library books. And this, I, I, I am borrowing that audiobook from the library. So another opportunity to get, you know, two birds with one stone. Well, perfect. Yeah. Do you have any books to haul or that you added to your TBR this week? So no haul. I don't do a lot of book buying, so I'm probably not going to contribute very much to actual hauls. But I did add, apart from the multitude of books I got from our conversation (laughs) last time, the only other thing I've added was a book called, uh, it's a nonfiction and it's called The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind and Body in the Healing of Trauma by 
Bessel van der Kolk. And that was, I think, recommended in another podcast I listened to because I can't imagine where else I would have found that. This, this, see, this is why I just add stuff to my TBR the second <laughs> people mention it because I, my memory is like a sieve it's it's the the chronic illness is like a it's a killer for your memory honestly like the fatigue is just not yeah. not a not a not a friend to remembering things <laughs> so it's a non-fiction it's it's basically about the mind body connection with trauma and like healing healing trauma through kind of harnessing that connection i think um i have i i'm not entirely sure but um it sounded good when it was recommended to me so i wrote it down <laughs> interesting interesting what about um, you I would say, oh, okay, I have a bit of a haul, a pretty small haul, but a haul because it was my birthday and I received a couple books. Nice. Um, the first of which, actually, I should look up the name real quick because I don't know what it's called, but essentially it is a feminist retelling of Genesis in which God is a woman hmm. and it's like satirical and it's a graphic novel. So all these layers, such a good birthday present, especially, I don't know, I really love I don't know, theology from a sort of curiosity perspective, not like, I don't want to say I love theology, because there's a lot of things wrong with theology. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I have a lot of curiosity about theology and religious studies in general. And there have definitely been moments where I'm like, tempted to be a chaplain, just because I think meaning making is really interesting and exciting. And they're atheist chaplains. So anyway, I am very excited for that. It's called Let There Be Light by liana fink fink f-i-n-c-k and it has a pretty art style and the cover's very cool it was an all-around great birthday gift very excited for that one awesome right and then the other book that i received it's called breasts and eggs by mieko kawakami which I know that Raylene and Ariel of the Books Unbound podcast have referenced Mieko Kawakami before, but I hadn't heard of this particular book. And I just got a whole glowing review of it from my friend who had gifted it to me. So I'm very excited to read it. It seems to be, I think it's a non-fiction sort of discussion on the experience of being raised as a woman in Japanese society. She is a Japanese author. Mm. Uh, And so my friend had been very interested in learning about the different perspectives and how it contrasts the way that we shape women in the West, or at least in the U.S. And I'm very excited to get into it because there's a whole bucket of books that I want to read that are on my TBR that are books translated from Japanese about Japanese culture and perspective that I really want to read together because I've tried sort of dipping my toes in, but it's just so different from the tone and the rhythm of Western literature, or at least English literature that I've been familiar with, that it's been a little bit hard for me to get into or just like overwhelming almost. And so I'm thinking like I'm going to create a sort of book reading project where I have a TBR of a handful of stories so I can get into it together and really get in that mindset. That Um, sounds great. Yeah. So um, listeners, you've got that to look forward to in the future. (laughs) Yes, definitely. I've got a few. Uh, In terms of books I've added to my TBR of late, it's mainly been those two, of course, because I just got them. And then 
I really want to read All Over Creation by Ruth Ozeki. That was actually recommended to me by the same friend who gave me breasts and eggs. I don't know so much about it, but I know it has elements of environmentalist theory and about like community gathering and the power of community in activism. And Mm. it does say fiction contemporary literature, which honestly, I'm surprised. I thought it was like a nonfiction sort of story the way, wait a second, Breasts and Eggs is also fiction contemporary literature. Who knew? I didn't. (laughs) So apparently (laughs) both of these things, which I thought were more like, not like manifestos, but like sort of thought experiment or like theory type books are both fictional interpretations of that. So that even makes me more excited because I'm, I definitely find fiction a lot easier to read, of course, I think as many of us do. Yeah, yeah. And then the last one that I've recently added to my list is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which not only has everyone been talking about, but I recently was like on a train ride with some friends and my friend really wanted to pick up a book, but didn't want to like commit to the book fully. So we decided to like split a book that she would read on the train and that I would keep later and read. And Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow was just the one on the shelf that I had recognized the name of. And then she got it. We split the cost. She read it on the train or at least started it on the train and was totally obsessed. So I have to read it now, basically, not only because I own it, but also because just hearing amazing things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I already had that on my list. I've had, again, with the memory thing, I have gone to add that to my list multiple times because people keep recommending it. And I keep going to going to my story graph and seeing like, oh, oh, it's there already. Cool. (laughs) So um, (laughs) clearly it's very highly recommended. Yeah, so that's that's all I have to haul for physical books and TBR for this week. So now we can get into the next segment. Yes, so virtual drum roll. Did you watch the BBC Pride and Prejudice? I got through three of six episodes. I got through it sounds negative. No, no, no. I, I very much enjoyed three of six episodes. Excellent. That's actually way more than I expected from your busy week. <laughs> so well done. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and they're, they're good. The, oh, the hard thing was I, it's on Hulu for me and my Hulu has ads. So that, that was the greatest challenge of getting through because they were not only hour long episodes, they also had ads, which was terrible. But That's just rude. How dare they? Just rude. But I was able to, I mean, it was so easy to enjoy it nonetheless because gosh it's just such a good story yeah yeah and do you see what i mean by the casting as well yes no the, the casting was great you know what's funny um i actually also rewatched the cure knightley version of pride and prejudice to sort of refresh my memory so i can like have a good comparison and i was very surprised and excited to notice that i feel like so many of the actors are so similar I mean of course they cast them for the same roles but even like the two Lizzie's have a really similar way of almost like even the way they breathe and the way they carry sentences it, mm. I've noticed a lot of similarities like that which makes me think I assume I think the BBC version is older than, it is yeah it's about 10 years older yeah that makes sense and I, I think they definitely like the actors wanted to take a lot of inspiration from it because I mean both the moms just they honestly you could trade one for the other I feel like they both have such strong energy I mean it's the character obviously that creates that energy in the first place but I didn't notice that there were any characters that really 
differed in this dramatic way for me. So interesting. I, I know maybe you had a different experience. The, the one thing that I noticed was a bigger difference was that in the BBC series, because it was kept more like true to the time, whereas the newer one, like I sort of explained last week, it has more of a Hollywood theatrical vibe. And I noticed also the costumes are less accurate to the time. Which isn't usually something I'm so picky about, but it was just interesting to notice. So the the BBC version, I felt, was very... Like, the characters were quite reserved compared to the 2005 movie. Especially Lizzie. Like, I found it difficult at times to really know what she was thinking. I mean, if I hadn't known the story, it would definitely be difficult. Whereas I know the story, I know what she's thinking. So it's not actually that difficult. But she doesn't portray what she's feeling on her in like in her emotions on her face in these really intense moments where Darcy is like professing his love and stuff like this she's like very much keeping a straight face which I thought was very interesting because I'm so used to the dramatic like yelling at each other in this sort of more modern way Mm. um and you know I, I don't feel like I need to pick a favorite of course I have the nostalgia factor with the movie version I think they're they're doing different things but both feel really true to the story for me and I think like I lean towards the romanticism the theatrics that they have in the movie version also just the cinematography in the movie version wow blows me it away. is extremely good yeah yeah oh, it's just it's just stunning but I also really appreciated that, that the series gave more time for each moment to sit with you and you know each event takes weeks which you don't feel in the movie because it's just a different time you know when time is moving slower they have to visit places for months and not just days or weeks yeah. so I find um, that the series portrayed that more accurately mm. to me. and it was kind of funny to like watch the series and then watch the movie and be like whoa 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 we're already there you know um, yeah whereas previously that felt like the natural progression of the movie which you know I feel like I can't fault the movie for it because it's a movie it can't be so long it can't be six hours long but anyway I i thoroughly am enjoying the series i feel like lizzie is just so perfect she's that actress is so beautiful oh right she's just stunning like just sitting there she's just stunning and i love jane it's a really good jane character i feel um, i agree yep just like the way i don't know something about her it, it just feels very much like book jane to me i felt I do prefer the dad character in the movie version. I don't know. For some, the dad in the show, for me, his lines were a little bit carried like awkwardly, like just a little out of beat in time sometimes. And so I think that like pulled me out of it a few times. But on a whole, the differences were so slight and particular. Like the things that were different felt very intentional in stylistic choices that it didn't feel like one surpassed the other for me so what are your thoughts on the the version that you haven't watched i feel like we haven't given any context for this segment by the way (laughs) last time we wanted to you know compare the bbc version which is emma's favorite versus the 2005 kira knightley movie version of pride and prejudice which is my favorite because neither of us had watched the other and so now we have watched them and we're going to share our thoughts emma go for it Yes, well, thank you for providing that context. We, I think, have assumed people will be starting from the beginning, which may not be the case, depending on... I just got too excited about the conversation. (laughs) I just jumped right in. 
<laughs> all good, all good. Yeah, so that's really interesting what you've said. Uh, so several things there. So first, I guess I'll overall my impression was much better than I expected. Awesome. Um, I did really enjoy it as as like you said last time as a movie in and of itself. Fantastic, really enjoyable. I completely disagree with you on the Mr. Bennett front mm. because. To me, the way Mr. Bennett is portrayed in the show is exactly what he's like in the book. He he sits and waits for his wife to finish rambling. And then when <laughs> when he knows she's done, he kind of patiently gives her a smile and then says something super witty back. So that kind of, you know, pacing that you were talking about, I think seemed really intentional to me. Like it seemed it seemed like part of his character. Mm, I see. Yeah. yeah. So it being a show, there's more time for that. Exactly. Maybe. Yeah. Um, um, and I that was actually one of the very, very few, I have to say, I, I actually did enjoy the movie much more than I expected to. But that is one of the very few bugbears I had with, with the movie was that the dad didn't seem like the same character to me. He seemed... Mm. He seemed far less jovial. Like the 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 you can almost hear the twinkle in his eye when, when you hear um, the way Jane Austen describes Mr. Bennett. And I just felt like that wasn't there with the mm-hmm. movie, Dad. Um, he was much more kind of subdued, I suppose. Yeah, I know what you mean. And yeah, I think it, it, it probably doesn't help that I saw the BBC one first. And I think that's probably similar to what you're having. But like, yeah, it, it just didn't seem quite right to me. He didn't, he didn't have a strong enough presence for me. Like, you know, but one of the things I absolutely adore about Pride and Prejudice is the dynamic between Mr. and Mrs. Bennett and the fact that she... Is uh, you know off the rails all the time, and he just smilingly is well acquainted with her nerves, <laughs> um, as he puts it himself. Whereas the movie version, I feel like he was more. It seemed more like he was pushing up with her rather than kind of just accepting the way mm-hmm. she is. I don't know. Maybe that was me projecting something, but yeah, he he didn't seem quite as kind of cheerful as I would have expected. Bugbear number two. Collins? Really? Yeah, I so the 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 BBC Collins makes me cackle. He <laughs> like he's he's just so exa- again, so exactly how it's written. Again, the time factor helps, but his impropriety, I feel like was much more exemplified in like the you know, the, his his just insanely verbose presence. Like he just he just just yeah, annoying everyone. Uh, whereas the the Collins in the movie was still awkward. I, actually, no. That the, one of the problems was that he was awkward. Like the the Collins in the book and in the show, he's an overconfident man. He has far too high an opinion of his and his, of his own you know status in the world and and the people that he associates with and how much importance that gives him and you know um the impropriety of his introducing himself to Darcy for example was just it had to kind of be explained um by Lizzie in the movie briefly whereas in the show and in the book it's kind of just you know everyone just is aghast <laughs> and you know he, he while he just goes on and on and on and on he definitely and... feels more of a predator in the movie I feel like in the way he like doesn't accept her refusal like in the show it felt like when he was processing her refusal of his offer to marry her 
it felt like he was very naively not accepting it or like not processing what she was saying or you know he he was almost very innocent in that and thinking thinking too highly of himself to accept that she would reject yeah yes whereas in the movie it felt like well you have to because this is you know otherwise I'm going to take your property away or I don't know if he like literally said that but there's something about the way he carries the lines that feels more yeah I agree and that that was that was one of the probably the, one of the bigger problems I had with the movie was just uh, that the character just didn't feel right to me at all, which, you know, possibly partly the writing, but I think, you know, but possibly also like a directing decision. I doubt it would like the, the actor did a great job of portraying what they clearly were trying to portray. Um, <laughs> but I just think it was a it was slightly, I think they just made like a different choice. Maybe they thought that, you know, thinking about, you know, I think it was made in 2000, yeah, it was released in 2005 and they, maybe they were thinking that that would have more of an impact on audiences than just having a guy drone on and on and on and on and be annoying. I don't know, but yeah, that was one of my things. And uh, the final thing was, and I know you're probably going to disagree with me on this, the initial proposal scene where they're just yelling at each other in the rain. Oh, that's the best scene of the movie. I completely disagree. I, (laughs) yeah, no, it was, it was just, it was way too much for me. Like I, I, (laughs) they... I, I much I know I know yeah and that was the other thing that I found interesting about what you said was that you really enjoyed that element of like um you know extra drama or whatever and that it was it seemed a bit you know Lizzie seemed a bit too kind of you know poker face in that scene in the in the show but for me I think because I'm so familiar with that version and also because I am just a diehard fan of the book and you know I have very very much engrossed myself in Jane Austen's world a lot recently the uh, (laughs) the idea that Darcy would ever voluntarily stand in the rain and chase a woman (laughs) outside to propose to her rather than wait for an opportune moment or ask for her to join him in a room or something seemed just too ridiculous and it took me out of the movie completely at that point like I just was like no you know actually I completely see what you mean I mean in terms of the theatrics I feel like there's something I don't know you know how okay this persuasion uh, adaptation that everyone's like hating on um, a big problem with it is that they're just trying too hard to modernize it what I like this movie this uh, Pride and Precious movie is that they're modernizing in a way like you can kind of feel it in the humor and in the theatrics and also in the clothes a bit but they're like aspects that are modernized but it's not overdone like it's really subdued I think I mean compared to what it could be compared to like this persuasion adaptation where they're like oh it's a playlist you know or I don't know if you've seen the the memes of the the ridiculous lengths they go to in this movie I mean I haven't seen it so I can't judge but whatever my point is there's a certain aspect of like modernism in this adaptation that I like because I think they do it in a natural feeling way but I now that you've said it I completely agree Darcy would never go out in the rain for anyone I mean that's so undignified he's he's right up until the end though he loves her so much he just too undignified yeah no even because because the words he was saying were still within that kind of dignified realm and then it just did not 
fit. Like, I don't mind Lizzie getting a little undignified. Like, I can see with the modernization of Kira Knightley's version of Lizzie as well. I actually didn't mind that. But the idea that Darcy would stand in the rain and chase after a woman in the rain outside rather than just wait for an opportune time just seemed just, nah. I will um, say, though, mm. the place I've left off on on the show is right after the proposal. And I did feel like, you know, again, they're trying to be more proper, of course, but I almost didn't feel his passion enough in that proposal. He just, like, stated it as if she should already have known. And obviously she didn't know. I mean, he maybe he didn't realize. I know he didn't realize how deeply she resented him, but he has had to have known that his you know, affections were somewhat secret. And the way he says it is just so matter of fact that like, I feel like I needed something more like the movie version where he's taken aback by his own feelings and you can really see it like being vulnerable on his face, even though maybe he's just not a vulnerable character. I mean, but he is, he, she turns him vulnerable. That's the thing. That's, that's his whole arc. I feel like he becomes vulnerable for her. And I would have wanted to see a little bit more, more vulnerability in his emotional expression in the, in the actor's emotional expression mm, I can see what you mean um, especially in terms of like the lead up I feel like there's it, it's incredibly true to the book and so like in terms of dialogue it's perfect right but right. in terms of like the visuals I guess there's not a lot of indication that he's starting to fall in love with her but I in terms of the proposal scene itself Colin Firth's smoldering eyes and like <laughs> the depths of them I I think personally is enough to portray that to me but um you know to each their own um <laughs> and um we can comfortably agree to disagree on certain things because we have the nostalgia factor that too yeah and also like I also have my mom's voice in my ear from when I first watched it with her telling me like oh did you know that um and I, I think this is true I did you know that Colin Firth actually asked um to you know get, get his hair dyed uh, a, a couple of shades darker so that he could it could add to like the smoldering persona and I'm like that is perfect <laughs> uh, no, he's I'm definitely falling in love with him as you know uh, an image of of Darcy in a way that I hadn't before like before my Darcy was the Darcy from the movie and when I'd see clips on like YouTube when I looked up um, a Pride and Prejudice scene and I got a scene from the show I'd be like oh it's just not my Darcy but then now that I'm watching it I'm really feeling that he is a Darcy for me and that I can have mm-hmm. two that's okay I'm actually glad I have two Darcy's yeah, they're, and they're very, they do play it quite differently. Um, and mm-hmm. I think, like you said, the, the vulnerability is more, definitely more clear in the, in the movie version. And, like, even just the... The puppy the dog word, like Yeah, it's like those, the, the big blue eyes, the, you know, the kind of softer features of his face. Like, it's very much like a, a, a more vulnerable acti- actor choice as well, whereas Colin Firth is, I think, in my opinion, more true to the book because he's, you know... Um, yeah. More true to the time, I think. Yes. And it's the same thing with Jane as well. Jane, they're, they're, both, they're both great, but the Jane in the movie had a much more modern beauty, whereas the Jane, I think one of the things you were mentioning just before was that the Jane in the show seemed like there was just something about her. And even like her features, like the the straight nose, the like um, very, def- you know, refined uh, chin, and it's very much a classical beauty, mm-hmm. which also, you know, pairs perfectly with Lizzie's being a more modern type of beauty next to her so you know I, I i i think that that kind of is true of both 
of those characters in terms of the show has kind of gone with a more book appropriate choice I guess you know Um, I actually really agree with that and um I think part of sometimes what will throw me off with Jane from the movie is that I just see Gone Girl. Did you ever watch that movie? No. She just plays a psychopath and it's just so not Jane. But I see that in her face. And, you know, while I was watching the show and when I was watching the movie, I actually was thinking about or was imagining this one actress playing Jane. I'm trying to find her name. Okay. She's Polish. So she has a, a long and slightly difficult to pronounce last name, but Mia Wazikowska. She's the actress who played Alice in the Alice in Wonderland live action movies. I feel like she would be a great Jane for some reason. I don't know why, but when I was watching both, I was just like picturing her as Jane for some reason. I, she would be a great Jane. Interesting. Okay, cool. I'm sending you a picture right now of <laughs> the exact sort of look that I'm imagining for this character. I think you'll get it. Nice. Maybe we could add this to the description. Oh, yeah, there it is. Oh! Right? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and she's an Australian actress. Oh, is she? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's right there. Look at that. So huh. cool. Cool. Anywho, uh, yeah, I, I so... that she's Polish. I, I live in a Polish neighborhood, so I see a lot of Polish names very often. I don't know for a fact that she's Polish, but I just guess. Probably. I mean, yeah. I think the one thing I did really, really love, and like you were saying, there were some elements of like the modernization of the movie that just worked really well. I think Bingley's, <laughs> the lead up to Bingley's proposal, there are oh, so many adorable moments. Like the moment where suddenly all the family are having to like rush around and get themselves <laughs> presented and then they walk in and the women are just perfectly lined up like in like the, the it's just absolutely hilariously well done yes and then when he leaves oh my gosh and he's like standing there pacing by the water and darcy's like come on man <laughs> i know it's so funny and it's like i i i can i can see that being the way that they're because we never get to see their friendship um in in oh, the book yeah. or and therefore in the show and so i actually really love that moment of, of darcy being like come on man you got this you know and it's such a it's such a point of contention i feel like in the story like how could bingley be friends with such a you know rough and somber person you know someone who seems so unfriendly and bingley's just so open and uh, jovial you know so there's this curiosity like what is their friendship and you see a glimpse of it in that moment but i would love to see more yeah, it was it was really it was really good. I, I and you know you, you do get hints throughout the book and 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 the show that there's more to Darcy when he gets to know people. Mm-hmm. But you know having that kind of play out in a slightly more modern way, it was it was it was very cute. I think the casting of Bingley in the movie was also very good. Like I I he he was had such like an adorable boyish face and he looked so awkward but happy and. His hair was ridiculous, which I'm going to put down to 2005 <laughs> logic. Uh, sure. And uh, similarly to Lizzie's fringe as well, by the way, that kept distracting me every now and again. I'm like, Kira Knightley has such a lovely forehead and fringes of that kind I don't think were really a thing. So why did they give her that fringe? Right, right. I don't know if that's a thought that had occurred to you before, but it bugged me. You know, I hadn't really thought about the inaccuracy of the costuming. I mean, it's not so inaccurate, but like it's slightly modernized until I watch the show. I, I mean, it doesn't like bother me. I guess maybe because I'm just used to it, but it was interesting to see how they like had that sort of twist to it. Yeah, it didn't bother me either in terms of like accuracy. It was more just that I don't think it looked good on her. 
Like <laughs> Kira Knightley has such a gorgeous face and like the oval, the full oval at the top and then heart shape down the bottom is stunning. And then you just kind of cut off half of it with the fringe. And I was just like, eh. like you're actively making her look less pretty in my opinion. But mm-hmm. maybe that's just me. Anyway, otherwise, yeah, I don't really, I didn't really mind about the costumes and, and, and that kind of stuff. Because, yeah, you know, like I said last time, I'm not super picky about accuracy to that extent. It was more just kind of like a, it's just like, oh, really? Why why that choice? (laughs) You know, that actor feels so familiar. Like, I saw him in something else, but I just looked up his, like, movie discography. No, that's is is this Is this Bingley? Bingley, yes, the actor for Bingley. Sorry, I, I got uh, sort of zoned into that when we were talking about his hair and I've been like on the side looking him up. And I just don't see anything else that he's been in that I've seen. And it's just so weird because he seems so familiar. Maybe he just honestly has one of those white boy faces. It's funny you say that because I'm pretty sure I did the same thing. And I was like, no, no, I haven't seen him. <laughs> yeah. The the only the only actor, actor apart from Kira Knightley, obviously, the only other actor that really stood out to me as like oh I've seen you in something very recently was Carrie Mulligan who plays um she's playing yeah she's playing Kitty in the in the movie and I I was like oh I just watched Promising Young Woman like a few months ago I love that actress uh have you seen the okay this is another uh people have controversy over which version they like Great Gatsby have you seen her in Great Gatsby the Leonardo DiCaprio version oh she's Daisy isn't she I'd forgotten about that (laughs) I love love that that movie. movie oh it's so good it's so good. I I I don't even care if there are inaccuracies. I just it was so transporting. I I genuinely like I was in like a I don't know if you get this as well, but sometimes when I'm especially if I see something in cinema as I did with that one, sometimes at the end of the movie if it was if it was like engrossing enough, I'm almost in like a mini coma after. Like I just can't move yeah. or speak for a few seconds. Yeah. Do you get that? I no, I know exactly what you mean. Like just you're like still in it even though the screen is like flashing names and you're just not not ready to let go yet. So your body you're still there. Oh my gosh, no, I totally feel that with that version. And that's another like dramatized sort of like love story that's has inaccuracies that are modern, but I love it. Like I just eat that up. (laughs) That is a really good one. I love that one. Yeah. And also Carrie Mulligan. Oh, she she's also so good in it. Like her particular portrayal of Daisy, I find to be perfect. And she's just a good actress in general. I, I really mm. appreciate anything she does, honestly. Have you seen Promising Young Woman? Yes. So good. Loved it. I'm sad that the that the pandemic meant that I couldn't see that one in cinema and I basically watched most of it on my phone. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I watched it on my phone too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Uh any final comments on the Pride and Prejudice comparisons? I don't think so. I'm. I'm. I guess my last comment is thank you for making me finally watch this. I'm glad I got to it eventually. You know. Yeah, me too. I've also been meaning to watch it for a while, and I just kept forgetting. So I'm glad that we had that kind of you know homework task for each other. Amazing. Well, thank and, you. And so- uh, do you reckon you'll have finished the last three episodes by the time we speak next? Oh, definitely. definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully, some more books. Hopefully, broken things. Sounds good. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Um, thank you for being here with us again, listeners. This has been yeah. Books Without Borders. Thanks, guys. <laughs>